Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Welcome to all who are listening to this broadcast session. This session is a studio recording, which is an attempt to perhaps fill in some of the gaps in the ideas that I shared in our live broadcast um, at the previous session, which was recorded at a Sunday morning worship service. So what we're going to do in this particular session is continue some of those ideas and perhaps just fill in some of the detail. That particular session at the last recording at church was very prophetic. So I want to, in this particular section, be more didactic, more teaching oriented, and just perhaps lay out some of the principles that were released there prophetically. Now, in that session, we, ex- we are exploring the issue of how submission accesses grace, but specifically how submission to fatherly leadership or spiritual parentage or spiritual fathering, how submission to that dynamic positions one for an increase in grace. So we looked at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who at 12 years old was ready to do his father's business. Mary and Joseph, who are depictions of his spiritual parents, literally put an end to that zeal because Jesus functioned without their knowledge nor their sanction when they did this the scripture says that he jesus willingly subjected himself to them and the scripture says specifically that by virtue of his subjection to mary and joseph who are representations of spiritual fathers in his life that jesus started to increase in the grace of god he in fact increased in stature wisdom and in favor, which is grace, with God, and in favor with men. And so we see a very, very clear principle emerging here, that submission to spiritual fathering is a key factor that is necessary for a spiritual son to increase in the grace of God. Now this is all the more true when, in context, the son is attempting to give expression to the call of God on his life. To do that without the oversight, guidance, counsel, and directive of a spiritual father is to possibly lead to abortion of destiny. Now, I have explained this at length in the previous session, so I don't want to go there now. What I want to do is perhaps give you another example of this. Now, I want to demonstrate the principle that the exploration of any spiritual calling or assignment in God by a spiritual son has no legitimacy or heaven's backing if that is not um, done so with the knowledge or under the guidance and direct oversight of his or her spiritual father in the Lord. Now, a case in point would be Saul's prophesying amongst the prophets. 
And this is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 10 to 12. The scripture says, When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, that's met Saul, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied. Now with the prophets. And the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? Verse 12 says, A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now this is Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, Saul was anointed and he prophesied in this context with many confirming signs. The response in the majority of the people was positive and widespread and they were very impressed by the seeming transformation within him. Notice they say, what has happened to Saul, the son of Kish? So there was an observation of apparent transformation. They were also impressed by his newly attained status as a prophet. Uh, it became proverbial, a proverbial saying that is Saul also among the prophets. So he seeks to attain a new identity, uh, so to speak, by virtue of his association with a prophetic company. Now, this transformation within Saul was only apparent. It was not internally qualitative. He could only prophesy because he was amongst the prophets. And the prevailing corporate prophetic grace allowed him to function prophetically. Also, his association, association with a particular sphere of ministers, in this case prophets, gave him a sense of heightened validation and boosted his spiritual image in the nation. So his operation among them was empowered by the Spirit of the Lord because it clearly says that he was functioning by the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He's amongst this group of prophets. And he becomes as proficient as they are. And his spiritual image and reputation is bolstered in the minds and the opinions of men. All of this is so powerful except for one negative factor. That seems to invalidate Saul's legitimacy to function in this context. And not just Paul's. Even the rest of this prophetic group verse 12 says now a man was there and he asks a question the question he asks is who is their father so this particular unnamed man was not impressed by Saul's or the rest of the group's accurate prophetic prophecies they were not, not, not even impressed by Saul's sphere of newly found prophetic ministerial relationships this man wanted to know who their father was. He was not impressed nor astounded by the proficiency in the operation of the prophetic office or the prophetic gift unless he could determine the source of fathering from which they functioned. Now this seems to imply that they operated illegally in the spirit. Now this man was wise. The wise are not deceived by gifting but require access to the root of the fathering dynamic 
from which the persons hail. Now, there's a very important lesson, I think, for all of us here. Like Saul, we too must not seek impartation and validation from a source or sphere of relationships which might be highly proficient in the operation of the gifting and calling, yet do not flow out from the blessing and authentication of accurate spiritual fathering. The absence of spiritual fathering or grace cancelled any uh, legitimate expression of spiritual giftedness in this context. Now, the term father denotes or highlights a point of the origin of the thing. Amongst its many meanings, pate uh, or abba in the Hebrew, pate in the Greek, denotes that fathering as the author, the beginner of things, uh, the first recipients. He who comes to be first in the recipient of a thing so as to perpetuate the thing to many who come after him as his sons. So Samuel, in the context of Saul, received or had a resident prophetic grace before Saul. Now Saul is functioning outside of Samuel's fatherly prophetic grace to function prophetically. In a sense, he's functioning illegally, and so are the group of prophets with him. They are highly proficient, but nobody knows from which fathering context they emerge. And this wise man simply questions. He's not doubting their accuracy, but he's questioning their legitimacy. And I think in the season in which we are living, what we are after is not just accuracy, but whether, but whether or not we are flowing accurately, but with a sense of license, a sense of legitimacy um, that is backed from God in the heavens himself. So I want to encourage us simply to be aware of these things. Just as an aside, fatherhood generally denotes headship. Now, not all gifts are headship gifts. The principle of father is a principle of headship. The head lifts up the rest of the body. A spiritual father as the head is not there to keep the sun down, but to lift the sun up. A hand can throw a stone far, but not the head. But the head instructs the hand to do the same. So the hand without the head is useless. Before there was Saul, there was Samuel. Saul should have sought to function as an expression of the fatherly prophetic grace within Samuel. You will see this principle also when David killed Goliath. The legitimacy of his powerful overcoming of Goliath in the battlefield was undergirded by establishing the source of who fathered him. Remember, King Saul wanted to know not who is the lad that killed Goliath. The question that was paramount after David killed Goliath was, who is your father? If we can establish fathering, we can, we can establish the legitimacy of your function in the kingdom of the Lord. Amen. Now, I want to switch to another thought. Please bear in mind, this particular broadcast is an attempt to fill out some of the details in the prior session. So you need to listen to the prior session to understand some of the concepts I'm explaining now. 
Now, Jesus was both the Son of Man and He was the Son of God. He was God's Son, but He was also Joseph's Son. And in the expression that He sought to have in terms of expressing the will of God, His Heavenly Father, for His life, He first had to demonstrate how that He can submit as a spiritual son to Joseph and Mary. And Jesus subjected Himself to these individuals for 18 long years. So, and these are silent years in the Scripture. Uh, not, not, not much is said about our Lord in these years. All we know is one text where the Scripture says in Luke 2, 51, that He subjected Himself to them. And this was for 18 long years. This was between the ages of 12 and 30. Now these years were spent in active submission to Joseph and Mary. Uh, when He was 30 years old at His baptism, the Heavenly Father affirmed and validated his divine sonship by saying this is my son in whom I am well pleased but before this Jesus spends 18 years demonstrating his willingness to support and be subject to his earthly natural which is both spiritual and biological father in, in his case in the persons of Joseph and Mary now it is important to understand that Joseph was a carpenter and so Jesus would naturally be trained as one under Joseph. He supported Joseph and so much that he would ultimately be called in Scripture, not only Joseph's son, but the carpenter's son. The carpenter's son. He would also become to known as the carpenter of Nazareth. Matthew 13, 55 says the following. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? Mark 6 verse 2 to 3 says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? Notice, is this not the carpenter? So Jesus was not just the carpenter's son. He was called the carpenter. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, etc.? Now note, he's called the carpenter's son and also the carpenter. Joseph was known for carpentry in Nazareth. And Jesus here is described not only as Joseph's son, but as the carpenter's son. In other words, Joseph's renown and excellence as a carpenter was firmly established and entrenched within the entire city of Nazareth. Carpentry was Joseph's trade or business. It was the thing by which he became identified and associated with. Jesus became known as the son of that carpenter. So his identity was subsumed within the calling of his father. Jesus became so excellent in this trade of carpentry that Mark calls him not just the carpenter's son, but the carpenter. In other words, there was no better carpenter. If he's called the carpenter of Nazareth, the implication is that 
he was so excellent that he outranked, outdid every other carpenter and possibly even his own father in the entire city of Nazareth. So the lessons to learn here. Submission in humility in Jesus manifested when he submitted his spiritual calling and identity to an earthly father for 30 years of his life, supporting and developing excellence in what that father was called to do. Then at his baptism at 30 years old, the heavenly father described him as his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now he was ready. Now he was ready to be subsumed fully into a higher purpose and be known by his heavenly father's occupation, identity and will for his life. But first was the natural the carpenter's son, and then the spiritual, the heavenly father's son. If we cannot be submitted to the natural order of things, how can we ever hope to be effective as stewards of heavenly things? In the Bible, Jesus is called Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or simply Christ. Uh, the term Jesus or Jesus Christ highlights his humanity. The framing Christ Jesus, often used by Paul, highlights his ascended or resurrected disposition after the cross. And then the term Christ, in which it stands alone, highlights his divinity or his pre-existent eternal position and identity as the Son of God in the triune God. So in the Bible, Jesus is both called, for example, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Son of God, or Son of Man rather, describes his humanity as Jesus or Jesus Christ. Um, his identity as a human being, experiencing everything that we as humans experience. And it also highlights the fact that he was submissive to earthly authority. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. Son of God highlights his divine sonship and references Christ in his eternal pre-existent position. Now here's the important point. For 18 years, he had to excel in his position as son of man or in spiritual sonship before he was given public recognition and validation as the son of God in terms of his divine sonship by the heavenly father. God could have never used him as the Son of God until he matured in his role and function as the Son of Man in reference to Joseph. Now similarly, God cannot use us as divine sons to any significant degree until we have first proven submission to earthly spiritual fathers as spiritual sons, supporting the vision, the mandate, the purposes of God vested in and through them. And Jesus did this for 18 long years. Now 18 is 6 multiplied by 3. 6 is the number of man. Man was created on the 6th day. 3 is the number of divine completeness. Or something so strong and substantial. For example, there are 3 persons in the Godhead. It's also indicative of more excellent things. Things that 
cannot be easily dislodged. The threefold cord cannot be broken. So for 18 years, that's six, the number of man, and three, completeness or strength or substantial solidity. For 18 years, Jesus brought divine perfection and completeness to his humanity, to his manhood, or in his role as son of man. But this demanded that he be subject to the counsel, direction, and parental authority of earthly spiritual parents in the persons of Joseph and Mary, whom God had put in his life. So I want to encourage you, master submission in reference to earthly spiritual fathers, because that is going to position you for an increased quantum of grace. Notice Jesus only increased in grace in the context of him being submitted for 18 years to Joseph and Mary. That submission positioned him for such increase in grace when at 30 he would become full of grace and the heavenly father would validate him, affirm him from the heavens as his own son and then launch him into public ministry for three and a half years, which was extremely effective. So I want to encourage you to remove the element of rebellion and the unwillingness to submit to God-ordained authority. Then you will be accurately positioned to receive the, the increase of the grace of God. At times, this must be so, even when those you are called to submit to do not completely or accurately comprehend the scope of God's will for your life. In this respect, I would encourage you again, listen to the prior broadcast, wherein I explain why sometimes God permits uh, the inability in spiritual fathers to fully comprehend the destiny of a son. Why is that so at times, yet still expects the son to submit? Uh, so please refer to my previous broadcast in which we, we laid out some of the spiritual reasons for that. So Jesus would go down to Nazareth and for 18 years subject himself to Mary and Joseph. And again in the prior broadcast, I delineated what Nazareth as a city prophetically alludes to and why was it necessary for Jesus to express subjection to his spiritual parents in that specific context, in that specific context. Now, in these 18 years, Luke 2.52 says that Jesus kept increasing. I alluded to in a prior session that the Greek word for increasing here, so he increases in four dimensions, including grace, is the Greek word propkopto. And propkopto literally means this. So what does it mean when it says Jesus, by virtue of his submission, increased in grace? The word means the following, to strike a way forward, to cut a way forward, to drive forward as if by beating, to beat or to drive forward with repeated or repetitive strokes. It also means to advance or to proceed. So to increase here implies the beating or active removal of obstacles or impediments in an attempt to get ahead. So we, we want to proceed, we want to increase, we want to advance, strike a way forward, cut a way forward, 
So we want to remove any obstacle that prevents us from proceeding. And the word was actually used in Greek culture to describe the process of the lengthening out of metals, which were literally hammered out repetitively by smiths. So once the metal was heated, it would be hammered out, flattened out with repetitive blows. So to attain increase demands effort on our part. So grace is not just unmerited where we do nothing to increase in it. No, the, it is merited in the sense that once we are in the kingdom, having received the unmerited grace of God, not by the works which of, of, of flesh which we have done to earn it, but as recipients of His kindness and His mercy, we enter into the kingdom based upon unmerited grace, but once in the kingdom as sons of God to increase in that grace will demand certain dispositions, mentalities and behaviors in us to grow in it. Now the Bible says that God gives increase. As we seek to increase in grace, please know this. While you adopt certain dispositions, mentalities and behaviors, it's not something when God gives you the increase that you can lay any great store by that you attained it. No, uh, the, the very construct and, 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 and the very essence of grace is it's meted out to you because of the kindness, the benevolence, the generosity of our God. But there are certain things that we have to do um, to position ourselves to receive and to activate this gratuitous nature in God. So, Increase is not really attained. Increased is literally given but activated by certain dispositions in us. Uh, for example, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, I planted, Paul speaking here, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So increase is always given. But even in, in, this, in this text, the increase given is only in response to the activities of planting and watering. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. God only gives in response to activities of planting and watering. So there's something that we have to do. We have to deliberately cut a way forward into the realm or area in which we believe God is calling us to attain or to receive the increase that he desires to give to us. And so the idea of prop copto, increasing in grace in the Greek, denotes the idea of repetition, of repeated strokes uh, in defining a way forward. Now this automatically calls for um, perseverance and endurance. At times you have to repeatedly, over a long period of time, engage in the same disposition, activity, behavior, sustained attitude or mindset that will tend to amount to you progressively carving out a new path of growth and increase for your life. Uh, generally, people give up too easily or too prematurely. I want to encourage you to not be sporadic, to not be inconsistent, exhibit a sameness in your behavior in terms of how you pursue your growth in spiritual things. Stick with the program. 
stick with the program of striking a way forward to reap the results. Jesus cut his own path of increase in four specific areas. In, in stature, in wisdom, in the favor of God, in favor with men. He repeatedly engaged his mind and he applied himself actively to increasing the grace. And this became apparent and was evident to, to all. Again, I want to stress, this increase in grace happened within a, an environmental context which, in, in which he subjected himself, submitted himself to spiritual fatherly oversight for 18 years. Little do we know, active submission is actually carving a way forward for us to increase in the grace of God. Now, I want to just draw reference to, after Jesus does this, and at 30 years old, after his baptism, the Heavenly Father uh, affirmed and validated his divine sonship, Jesus went, after he was tempted of the devil for 40 days, went into the synagogue, and there he read from the scroll of Isaiah, a portion of scripture, and everyone was in awe at him. Now, here's the text. It's Luke 4, 22. All were speaking well of him and wondered at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, notice the people emphasize that Jesus is Joseph's son in this verse. Yet profound heavenly grace was pouring forth from his mouth. The Bible says they were all speaking well, they were astonished, and specifically they were marveling at words of grace falling from his lips. Now, as a result of his submission to Joseph, his earthly spiritual father, the release of the grace of God from his heavenly father flowed unhinderedly from his lips. This revelation has got to seek deep within us. Active and willing submission to earthly spiritual fathering unlocks the fullness of the grace of God in our lives. And this will become obvious to observers. This will elevate your functioning even way beyond what your associations with your spiritual father in the natural allows or accommodates. Now to the minds of the people, it was inconceivable that someone from Joseph's household could communicate words of grace or gracious words that Jesus was speaking. So Jesus literally went beyond what his associations with Joseph prescribed in terms of the expectation of people. So submission to Joseph was key to this process. Right? It's key to this process. Submission to earthly spiritual fathering is key to the process of your standing as a son of God to deliver words of grace to your context. David's mighty men performed feats in war that by far surpassed David's military prowess. But yet they understood it was because of their submission and joining to David that they were so successful. A negative example is 
in the scripture in the person of Gehazi. Now, I don't want to go to the details here just to make a, uh, make a point of mentioning this. Submission is evidenced by obedience. If you're truly submitted to a spiritual father, you will obey his word. Now, Gehazi was a potential spiritual son to Elisha. But Gehazi manifested disobedience and insubmission when he blatantly disobeyed and he misrepresented Elisha in fraudulently seeking to extract funds from Naaman, funds which Elisha refused. So in his pursuit after the funds, Gehazi misrepresented the whole spirit and disposition of his oversight, his leader in the person of Elisha. And for this, he suffered leprosy and he never walked in any dimension of the grace and the anointing of Elisha. Right? He did not even receive favor from men. Jesus grew not just in favor or grace with God, but also with men. You see, Gehazi receives no favor from the king. But the Shunammite woman who honored and submitted the entirety of her life to Elisha, she accessed great favor from the king when he rewarded her with all of the harvest she would have received from her field in the time of that seven-year famine. Okay, I'm leaving the details, some of the details out here, but you can read the account in 2 Kings chapter 4 and 2 Kings chapter 8. So I want to encourage us. The growth to a place of being full of the grace of God is going to require absolute lowliness and submission to spiritual fathers. If ever we are going to walk in the grace and anointing of our fathers and even go to a level where we can function as the sons of God, divine sons of God in the earth, pouring forth words of grace from our lips to bless our current generation. It required of us to master submission. Uh, one of the most classic father-son models in the scripture is that of Elijah and Elisha. For many years, Elisha followed Elijah, his spiritual father. And at the time of the impartation of the double portion anointing from Elijah to Elisha, Elisha followed Elijah through four locations. Uh, you will read this in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, the four locations were places with significant spiritual meaning. The first one where Elisha followed Elijah to was Gilgal. And Gilgal means liberty, rolling away, or a circle. The root of Gilgal is a wheel. From there, they went to Bethel, which means the house of God. From there, they went to Jericho, which has a, a large number of meanings, among which is fragrance or scent. And scent denotes the apostolic principle. The last place they went to was Jordan. And as you know, Jordan means descending or flowing down rapidly, which is a picture of humility. So a spiritual son, Elisha, followed his spiritual father, Elijah, through these four locations. Now, any spiritual father will lead his son from Gilgal, that is a place of circular motion, 
every father will seek to get his son out of going in circular fashion, going around the mountain for 40 years, but accomplishing no progress at all, to Bethel, which means house of God, every spiritual father will help a spiritual son appreciate the value and the purpose of the house of God before they come to a place called Jericho, which is a place where the apostolic principle is activated because Jericho means sent, right? But before all this happens, they come to Jordan. The last place is Jordan. So all of the above is activated by a place of descent into deep humility and submission. It is at Jordan where the double portion from Elijah is bestowed upon Elisha. And Jordan signifies humility and submission, as I've said. This is the place of significant grace transactions and impartations of anointing. If there's no submission, there can be no transmission of the increase of the grace of God. And like I say, I believe that as we master this last disposition, this Jordan position, that everything attendant with our spiritual fathers in God will be transactedly imparted to us. But it's only imparted to us at the Jordan River, at this place of descent. At this place of, of descent. John 1.14 says that Jesus was full of grace. John 1.16 says, For of His fullness we receive grace upon grace. The word full is pleres in the Greek, and it means complete, abounding, or abundant. And the word fullness in verse 16 is pleroma, which means full measure or abundant. Now literally, this word implies that there was no room left within Jesus that was not saturated in and with the grace of God. It highlights the plenitude uh, dimension of grace with which God desires for all of us to be filled with, walk and function in. Progressively, we must receive grace upon grace, grace upon grace, grace upon grace. King James says grace for grace, grace for grace, grace upon grace until we come to a place of being full of the grace of God. There's no coming into fullness of grace unless we master submission to God-established authority or leadership over our lives and so embody the attitude and disposition of a servant or a humble bond slave or servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see the same word used, and it's true of Stephen in Acts 6 verse 8, where it says, Stephen, a man full of grace and power. That's the New American Standard. Stephen, a man full of grace and power. But Stephen, being full of grace, before that, embodied humility in how he served tables, in humble submission to the directives of apostles, which is a representation of fatherly leadership over his life. Okay? So there's no fullness until we master servanthood. In my last session, I drew reference to how Paul and Barnabas at the church at Antioch were commissioned 
by the Antioch leadership to do apostolic work. And they were sent out by that leadership, but the text also says sent out by the Holy Spirit. So here we have the Holy Spirit sending that was witnessed to, discerned, and cooperated with in that humans who were a representation of leadership would send out Paul and Barnabas. So human sending was literally equated to Holy Spirit sending. So no human can literally be sent out by the Holy Spirit until humans to which he is accountable and submitted to must endorse, witness to, and um, cooperate with that Holy Spirit sending and literally give, give public um, endorsement of that calling. Without that human side of things, even what is construed to be a Holy Spirit initiative will not find legitimacy. But the entire process demanded that those sent be submitted to those who sent them. We're living in an age where people refuse to submit to human representation of divine authority in their lives. Paul and Silas went from the church at Antioch on their first apostolic journey. And they would come back to that place to be accountable to, submit to, and report to those leaders who, who sent them. So we, here we have the, um, the, the coupling, if you would, of a powerful duo. God's intentions in the heavens, the Holy Spirit's will, and human agency in leadership on the earth, recognizing that, witnessing to that, cooperating with it. But the persons involved that were sent, submitting to the human representation to access the authorization of the Spirit that truly did, did send them. And it is true that when Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul rather, were commissioned in that first apostolic journey, they went out had marvelous success. You will read this in Acts 14. Marvelous success. And they would return back to Antioch. Acts 14, 16 says this. They sailed to Antioch from where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had to accomplish. So the success of Paul and Barnabas in that first apostolic journey, the Bible says when the human representation of authority and fatherly leadership over their lives sent them, being sent by the Holy Spirit, it tantamounted to a commendation to the grace of God. It says they were commended to the grace of God. So no person can access grace to empower your functionality in the will of God until you submit to those human earthly representations of leadership in your life. Okay? No one simply accesses grace from the Holy Spirit in a vacuum or abstractly. God uses humans as conduits um, or pipes, if you would, in and through which His grace would flow effortlessly. So Acts 14.26 is very important. They were commended to the grace of God in their sending. And that grace to which they were commended caused them great, great success. Now similarly, uh, when Paul and, uh, and Silas went forth, they were committed or commended to the grace of God too. Acts 15 verse 40 says, But Paul chose Silas and left 
being committed by the brethren to the grace of God. So the words commended or committed is the Greek phrase paradidmai, which means to deliver over or up to the power of someone, to surrender or to yield up, to entrust, to transmit or to recommend to. So the core meaning is to deliver over or up to the power of someone. So both Paul and Barnabas, and here Paul and Silas too, were delivered over to the power of the grace of God. In commending or committing them to the grace, they were delivered up to the power of God's grace, entrusted to them, not to their own strength. Right? Talent, giftedness, or apostleship. Great store was not held in the office, but rather in the grace of God which works through them and through the office in which they functioned. So may I encourage you and I that in order to access a specific quantum and quality of grace by which we seek to be empowered for effective functioning in the will of the Lord for our lives, we cannot ignore the factor of a requirement to submit to earthly representations of fatherly leadership within our lives that both sanction and authorize what we perceive to be an authentic and legitimate calling of God in our lives. Grace is activated when these individuals send us to our function, when these individuals empower us through the laying of hands or through a blessing, a verbal blessing, to, to sanction and authorize all of our efforts. It is very clear from the case studies I have given that both Barnabas and Saul, Paul and Silas, were commended or recommended and delivered over to the power of God's grace. But you cannot take out the element of human involvement in the process. So I want to encourage you by virtue of your submitted life to those whom God has placed over you to excel and grow in the grace of God. I want to encourage you to master submission and subjection and progressively increase in the grace of God until you become full, pleroma, pleris, full of the grace of God. My desire for you and I is that we will have grace in the fullest measure. First Peter chapter 1 verse 2 says, May the grace, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. The fullest measure. King James of the same text says, May grace and peace be multiplied. The word fullest measure or multiplied is the Greek plethuno which literally means to make full and hence to multiply or increase. As we close, I pray grace will be yours in the fullest measure. Great grace and peace be multiplied to you in ever-increasing measure. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that is able to build you up 
and give you an inheritance amongst all the saints which are sanctified in him. May the Lord richly bless you. Amen.